Ali Baker. She, her, an education lecturer and children's fantasy literature researcher at the University of East London. Apologies here, folks. At this point, my Wi-Fi decided to collapse, so I didn't record Aisha's introduction. She is uh, Aishwara Subramanian, English lecturer, children's literature researcher and a reviews editor for the Hugo-nominated Strange Horizons. At the beginning of this, Aisha said that she had been rereading a lot of Joan Aiken. So, as you said in the introduction, uh, just now, you've been reading a lot of Joan Aiken. And um, that is a big clue to one of the one of the texts that we're going to be talking about um, today. So we've been reading Is, which is also known as Is Underground in the States, I think, and perhaps in some other countries as well. Um, can you summarise the plot for us? Um, I'll try to. <laughs> so Is is uh, this is a very difficult book to talk about because of that title. Um, is is the eighth or possibly ninth book in Aiken's Wolves Chronicles, depending on whether we're counting The Whispering Mountain as zero or one. Uh, I've, I've gone into this in great depth. It's very confusing. Um, the Wolves books in general are set in uh, an alternate history version of well, our world, usually Britain, but they do... Um, Rome further afield. Um, and quite a lot of them are focused around the character Dido Twight. Is, or Isabeth Twight, is Dido's younger sister. And this is the first book that, where we really see her as a major character. Mm. And the book opens with her and her sister Penny living outside London. Is discovers that her unknown cousin Aaron has gone missing and she goes to London to investigate. Arriving there she finds out that um, hundreds of children including the king's son have also disappeared from the streets of London and that they may have been taken up north to Blastburn um, and we find out that the industrial north of England has recently seceded mm. from the rest of the country and they've um, elected a new king. I mean, what do you what do you call it when? <laughs> yeah, they've, they've got a new king. Yes, he's kind of you know called himself the king, hasn't he? So I'm not. And sure. everyone's sort of gone along with it. Yeah, yeah. So there's a new king. His name is Gold Kingy. Or at least that's how he's known in the south. And um, as a result of all of this, there's not much movement between the north and the south. Mm. Is gets herself kidnapped along with the other children. And she goes north and she finds out that, yes, this is where the children are, that they are being used as slave labor in this vast underground city where Blastburn used to be. Mm. And the majority of them are working in this quite dangerous undersea mine. Uh, she also discovers that Gold Kingy is her uncle Roy, again, who she's never met. Uh, the Twites are an incredible family and um, distributed across the country. Um, and also discovers that there are adults working against um, Uncle Roy or Gold Kingy's rule, including her great aunt Ishi and her grandfather. Mm. And she helps the children. Um, starts contacting the other children um, through what eventually becomes known as the touch, which is this sort of vast psychic link that all the children develop between themselves. And then essentially we get a workers' revolt. Mm. And it's great. Yes, it really is. And uh, I think the people who have read a lot of Aiken might recognise the name of this industrial city, Blasburn, because it's uh, it's mentioned in Wolves of the Wolves of Willoughby Chase as being the closest um, city to where Bonnie and Sylvia Green uh, live in Willoughby Willoughby's mansion, 
It's also in uh, Midnight is a Place, which it's Midnight is a Place isn't part of the Wolves Chronicles. Or is it? <laughs> or is it? Yeah, but because we don't, I mean, we don't know whether it's part of this alternate history or not, because it's it's very kind of it's a very gothic novel, which feels more mimetic. I mean, but we don't they don't talk about who the king is, so we can't tell. Um, but it's it's part of kind of Jane Aiken's universe. Um, I used to think of. Blastburn as being sort of where Bolton is, but it seems more like Hull actually because it's close. It's an industrial city close to the sea. Uh, or maybe and there's a reference to Holderness as well, which yes. is north of Hull. So absolutely, that seems geographically plausible, if nothing else. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a yeah. I, I absolutely love the Wilms of Willoughby chase uh well the wolves chronicles um wolves of willoughby chase well we'll come on to wolves of willoughby chase uh later on maybe so what is your first memory of reading it um so i have a slightly weird um history with this one in that it came out when i was probably seven or eight mm. um and I don't really have a strong sense of when I read it for the first yes. time, because at that age, I think there was a lot going on. Mm. And also, it probably took a while to actually get into a library. I, I certainly never owned it at that mm. point. Um, when I was probably in university um, around 2006, 2007-ish, I basically rebought all of the um, Wolves books because they they were coming out in these really nice editions. Mm. Um, I have this one. Yes, um, this is the this is the um, the combined is and Cold Shoulder Road, but there was this beautiful series of very colourful editions, and I just bought the entire series um, and did a read through. Um, and I wasn't sure at the time if I'd read this one. And then when I started reading it, I realized that there were some scenes that I definitely remembered. Um, the opening scene, but also things like uh, the first time that is goes into New Holderness. Mm. Um, when she, the, the first time she goes underground. Uh, and so I know I did read it at that point. Um, but the first actual memory of reading it is my second read right um and then a few and then when I was finishing my PhD and I was looking for every possible avenue of distraction to <laughs> not have to edit I did another wolves read through and um read this again for the third time and um again absolutely loved it but also with this read um one of my first thoughts was that I wanted to read it alongside Frances Harding, mm. who we're going to get to. So, it I've had that sort that I've had that sort of com that connection in my head for a little while now as well. Yeah, I I don't remember. I don't have very strong memories of reading this one for the first time. But I've just looked at when it was published, which was 1992, and that was when I was doing my year of teacher training. So I know that I did go back to reading um, all of the Wolves books, which I think I stopped as a child um, before um, Taido and Pa. Um, yeah, so maybe the last one I read as a child was probably The Stolen Lake or The Cuckoo Tree maybe one of those because it um they Joan Aiken was writing a lot of other things in between writing these these books it wasn't like a kind of uh Harry Potter thing yeah one book every other year yeah yeah this is much more of a kind of uh, I think Wolves of Willoughby Chase was published in the early 60s and then yeah. um the final book 
was published not long before um, she died. So yes, which is very, again early two thousands, wasn't early it? 2000s. So it's sort of. Yeah. I think I, th- I think the editions I have came out after she died as well. I think it was an attempt to do a complete set. Yes, yeah, one that you know, a unified looking set. Yeah, I think I think you're right. So, um, and while this is um, very much a fantasy book, it is an inter- alternate kingdom, as you say. There's uh, lots of kind of quite uh, fantastical elements to it, not least um, the character of, of um, um, Issa's great-grandfather and also Gold Kingy himself. Uh, it, it has got a lot of social realism, is it? realism in it, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and I think, that's one of the things I really like about it as well. Yeah, it's, it's very kind of grounded in the indu- early Industrial Revolution, isn't it? Um, so kind of in our timeline, well, in the mimetic world's timeline, kind of the beginning of the 19th century, maybe end of the 18th, there's a train in it. Um, and there is also, you know, lots of heavy industry going on which is using children um so that's kind of the early early 19th century um and Aiken carried out some research into the conditions of child laborers in in that era didn't she I think so you you do see that in quite a lot of the wolves books as well don't you because um there are particularly in the ones that are set in london you do have this sense of um children as workers children as um not not always um not always as exploited as the mm. children in blastburn because that is clearly extreme but of children as being a part of the workforce, not mm. having much of a childhood. Um, there's this wonderful moment in the Stolen Lake where um, one of the characters is really shocked to see children labouring in mm. the um, fantastic kingdom that we learn about in that book. And Dido is, she, she also accepts that it's bad. But mm. she's not shocked by it. So someone says it shouldn't be allowed. And Dido says, well, it is in London. Yes. And I think as well that one of the things that you really see in this book is an indictment of that system where it's not just that it's awful what's happening to the children in Blastburn, but the fact that the children are in Blastburn at all, the fact that it was so easy to seal them away is yes. because of how bad their lives are in London and also about how little anyone seems to care about their lives in London. Yes, that's absolutely um, that's absolutely it. We when they're on the train going from London to, to Blasburn, which is uh, the train's called the Playland Express because children are tricked, aren't they, into Go, they think they're going to this magical land where no children have to work and they just live on lollipops and play all day. But they're talking about like their lives of kind of, there's one of them who's um, a milliner's apprentice and how, you know, the, the kind of, which sounds like it's quite a nice job. You're sitting and making hats and sewing things. And then she's sort of saying, but, how, how much her body hurts, how little she's paid, how horrible her mistress is, um, you know, and kind of sitting crouched over, never going out into the open air and never playing. And, and it's, it's awful. So while the children in Blasburn are totally, totally exploited to the extent that the ones in the mine, because the mine is so far out to sea, they can't ever come out of the mine so they live in the mine as as well as working there and they're not paid and it's extremely dangerous 
um, in in London or you know in the south of England, children are equally exploited there um, because of their working conditions and not having any education. And actually, in the previous book, we find out that Is doesn't know that she is Dodo's half sister. Um, and she doesn't even know her name. Um, she also is sort of sleeping on the dirty floor of a kitchen. She doesn't really have any clothes. She can't read or write. She's not allowed to talk. Um, and it's, you know, that, that kind of is where her empathy and her ability to communicate through the touch with the uh, other exploited children comes from, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think it's a, it's a big part of it, I think, that... Um, she's got that kind of ability to to not just empathize, but like this this openness yes. to to their suffering and their experience. And I think you see that really clearly in the touch, mm. the point at which all of these children end up being connected in this very um, fundamental way. And that gets developed in the next book as well. And it's, um, it's something that really excites me as a concept because they start widening um, access to that um, beyond this group of suffering children in ways that I get quite excited about. Mm. But I really love that about her, that she's, that she's open to knowing these other people and understanding them and sympathizing with them and working with them. Yeah, she's, I find her, I mean, I, I adore Dido, but she's almost too spunky a heroine. <laughs> you know, she's almost, <laughs> she's almost too invulnerable. Um, whereas with this, I think she's a slightly more um, diffident character. She's very brave uh, and she's kind of very physically able but she's a little bit more hesitant and uh, her, her growing kind of friendship with Aaron has its ups and downs in a way that, that Dido's friendships don't always. Um, and I think she sort of also has more women friends than Dido does. Dido's yeah. a bit of a Lyra Bellacqua, although, you know, I think without Dido, there wouldn't be Alira Balakwa, I'm I'm pretty sure of it. So yeah, we, I agree with that definitely. We we've mentioned kind of some of the other books uh, in the Wolves Chronicles. Um, shall we sort of talk a little bit about how the story, the, how the narrative works, and where um, you know, and how this book links to the others? Um. Woody said, like, is Whispering Mountain the first one? Is it Wolves of Willoughby Chase? Do you want to explain a little bit about that? Um, well, it's very difficult to say because, it, as you've said, even with um, Midnight is a Place, there's this kind of, um, unless it's explicitly stated, it's quite hard to tell how much a book is a part of that world. And I think with these books, um, we tend, the question we're tending to ask is less, um, is this a continuous narrative? Mm. And more, are these books set in the same world, essentially? Mm. Uh, so it's, it's complicated. Um, a whis the, the Whispering Mountain is set in this world, mm. as far as we know. It's published as a part of the series but it's also published more as a prequel to that series. Mm. And um, I think that's probably because there aren't any overlapping characters. Are there? Mm. It's been a while since I've read it. No, I, I don't think so. Um, yeah, it's, it's set in Wales um, in, um, in the Wolves world. And it is about a character who is... Um, a precursor to some of the other characters yeah. uh, and it does kind of go some way to explaining um, some of the events in, in subsequent books but it was written a long time after um, the early 
Wolves Chronicles, um, which is, uh, and actually Lizza Aiken, um, who is Joan Aiken's daughter, has a, sort of maintains a website about Joan and does have some uh, information on the website about, um, about this world and about where the inspiration for a lot of it came from. Um, what I think is interesting is that the, the Wolves, of Will Wolves of Willoughby Chase, which was one of my favourite childhood books, um, is very much kind of, it's written for a slightly younger audience, I think. Um, and it's also kind of fa a fairly straightforward story of um, an evil governess who come, tricks the parents of um, Bonnie and, um, and the aunt and uncle of, of Sylvia, Bonnie and Sylvia are, are cousins, uh, and she's basically trying to steal the uh, steal the house and steal the contents of the house. And um, it's quite a straightforward adventure story, um, apart from the fact that there are wolves in Britain, which we learn have come through a channel tunnel that was built two centuries before the actual Channel Tunnel, uh, which is fascinating. But it doesn't have a lot of the other, apart from, you know, the kind of the awfulness, again, of exploited children, which is an ongoing theme uh, throughout the books. But otherwise, it doesn't have a great deal of the kind of real grittiness and the real um, slight grimness, while being funny, of, of the other um, Wolves Chronicles, I think. Do you have a favourite book? Um, I don't know. Um, I really love The Stolen Lake. Mm. Um, I have a lot of thoughts about The Stolen Lake, which, um, yeah, there's a lot going on. And also there are giant birds, uh, which what more can you really ask for in fiction? But... Um, I think this might actually be um, up there. Mm. This and I also love Wolves of Willoughby Chase. I think I read that first. It's it's a brilliant book. Mm. Um, it as you say, it's it's much more of a kind of traditional children's book. Yes, but it's um, it's a very good um, traditional children's book, isn't it? It's, it is. And it reminds me a bit of T.H. Um, White's Mistress Masham's Repose as well, yeah. in that sense of, you know, um, girl in giant estate with evil governess trying to steal it. It's a very, it's all very familiar. But yes. It's a really good rendition of that very familiar story. I think so. And I, I think if, with Miss Slycarp, you can also see links to Sylvia Daisy Pouncer in um, Midnight Folk and yes. uh, and Box of Delights, and also uh, oh, there's there's loads of evil governesses, and obviously there's the whole sort of Jane Eyre Lowood plot yes. going on as well with that. It's it's very, I think one of the things I really like about her is th is that sort of nineteenth centuryness. Um, you can sort of you can see Dickens in there. You can see Bronte in there, um, yes. and you can also see this entire lineage of classic children's books. But it's also just really good and satisfying on its own. Yes, absolutely. I think my favourite is Nightbirds on Nantucket. That's a great book. <laughs> it, I just adore it because um, I'm not a big fan of Moby Dick. I'm happy to go on there. <laughs> go on on their record and say that and I think that Joan Aiken has a lot of fun with the kind of Moby Dick elements of the book with the kind of hunting of the big pink whale and uh, <laughs> and the kind of the whale the whaling uh part of the story where Dido uh Dido was supposed to die at the end of um Black Hearts in Battersea 
And then so many children loved Dido and were writing to, to Akin to say, what happens next? What happens next? Please tell us that, that she survives. <laughs> that she and, Sherlock Holmes her. And she did. She Sherlock, she reverse Reichenbach fold her. Definitely. <laughs> uh, yeah, she's basically Dido is rescued by um, a whaler and is kept alive by uh, the, the cabin boy um, pouring molasses and whale oil uh, down her throat. As you do. It sounds totally grim, but I can imagine it's it's quite nourishing. Um, I, I yeah, it, I really really love it. I, I am also really fond of of Is, uh, both as a character and as a book. And um, you mentioned Dickens, and we're going to come on to talk about the language. But just at that kind of just while I'm, it's in my mind, um, I also recognize because I'm a huge Georgette Heyer fan I oh, recognize yeah. a lot of the thieves cant that it is yep. in Georgette Heyer so <laughs> yep. I sort of wonder Lisa maybe if uh, I will ask Lisa this if uh Joan Aiken was also a, a Georgette Heyer fan because well, we know Hay- she likes the Regency she did she, she did, wrote Regency she did a bunch of Austen yeah. Um, she did a bunch of Regency romances and Austen continuations. So she did. She, you would read Hale, wouldn't you, if you were if, yeah, if you well, were Joan Aiken? But you would I mean, read Hale if you were me, obviously. <laughs> you definitely read Hale if you were me. But Hale's Hale's um, research into the nineteenth, uh, early nineteenth century, the Regency period, is just amazing. Um, and in particular, the kind of glossaries of, of language that she she has. So, yeah, yeah um, there, there's there's something for me to to come back to. And the character of can Penny. I see? I can oh. see a bunch of um, hair behind you. That's right. Yes, it's, it's on my <laughs> bookshelf. That's right. That's only part of it. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so, um, and actually, right above my head, you can see my Aiken collection. That was less obvious to me, but yes, there it is. <laughs> they're, they're all different editions. I have a lot of, you know, collected them over the years. So yeah, they're not they're not all of the lovely bright coloured ones like you have. Um, so the character of Penny um, in this book. So Penny is Dido's older sister. Um, so they have the same parents. Um, and... Uh, is has the same father but Penny in the earlier books is quite an unsympathetic character isn't she she's quite mean to to Dido she's quite lazy and vain and ends up running off with um, a man who does her wrong and she's quite comes back quite bitter in the later Dido books how do, how do you find her? I in this book and in the book that follows it, mm. I really love her, and I obviously part of that is seeing her through Iz's perspective, and she's yes. the older sister who takes care of her. Um, and she is obviously quite a stern character. She's quite difficult to get to know, but she's also fundamentally this very reliable person in Iz's life and someone that she does trust completely and I yeah I like the way that is justified yeah and Aiken gives her growth doesn't she so she she she, does so while while she you know she's she's unfortunately had a very difficult life and learned the hard way about uh kind of the untrustworthy nature of of society for um uh, and the dangerous nature of society for it a young girl who just wants to go and have fun. Um, but she's also, um, she's got a trade. She's very good at her trade. She makes toys, um, uh, which in the normal times sell very well. Uh, as you said at the beginning, they live in Blackheath, just outside London on this, the south side of the Thames, which in this book is actually um, in this area and this era not area era is a heath but it's actually now a very sort of shishi 
um, fancy area of South London um, of with very big and very expensive houses. Um, she, she also is very practical um, and she's a really good storyteller. Yes, that's one of the that's one of the key things we find out about her in this book, and that and the fact that she is a storyteller has ramifications beyond her as well because it's something that is is able to take North with her. Yes, she takes and, those stories with her, and and Penny's stories are actually part of the salvation of the um, the children in the industrial working in the industries because they can communicate via their minds and, and is, can tell them the stories and that gives them hope and yeah. helps them to, to carry, uh, carry on going. Um, and I didn't realise until rereading this book that actually you can read Penny's stories in yeah. other collections, <laughs> can't you? It's Which great, is isn't lovely. it? I, I spent this morning, I took out, all the Aiken collections of short fiction I have and just had them spread out on the bed and I was sort of sprawled in the middle of this pile and I was trying to work out what was where and and obviously a lot of her stories have been printed in multiple collections yes um, and there are a few that I couldn't immediately trace but we've definitely got I made a list um oh, excellent. the harp of fish bones mm. which is um there's a collection titled The Harp of Fishbones, yes. so it's in that, um, which involves, incidentally, a, um, a city that gets punished for um, forgetting important things and, well, being too obsessed with gold. So Ooh. there's a thematic connect. Absolutely. Um, there's The Queen with the Screaming Hair, which I love. It's, yes. That's from The Last Slice of Rainbow, which was my first Aiken book ever, and I still have it and I love it. Um, the Rocking Donkey, which is about a rocking donkey. Um, <laughs> well, it's about a rocking horse that's a donkey, but it's also about a child kept in drudgery and the way that the donkey rescues her from that. And it's an, it's a really moving story. Mm. Um, the Leg Full of Rubies is in a bunch of them. I think I have it in um, sh something called Shadows and Moonshine. But I think it's also in um, Small Beer put out a collection titled People in the Castle a few yeah. years ago. And it's in that. Um, there's a story that is mentioned that is about a man who married a swan, um, which is probably the third wish, which is in, um, I think it's also in The People in the Castle, but it's also mm -hmm. in um, All But a Few, which is another sort of collection of a short fiction. Um, and I love that story as well. Um, it's it's a really interesting and subversive take on the traditional person gets three wishes and mm. um, gets greedy and messes things up story. Um, and in fact, I think one of the things that I really love about her short fiction that you see quite a lot in um, this book in particular is that sense of um, greed being kind of countered by these feelings of human empathy mm. where people don't do what you expect them to do. And it, and because and the reason they don't do what you expect them to do is because of that feeling of connection and empathy and kindness. Yes. And that, that turns out to be the twist in quite a lot of her short fiction, I think. And I really love that. Yes. I think there's the Parrot Pirate Princess as well mentioned yeah. in this book, isn't there? And that, that was in I think it is, yeah. I'm fairly sure that's in All But A Few because I think that was the first it is. collection I read. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's brilliant. Really, really funny story because what's very interesting about Jane Aiken is that she had to earn her money by writing and her living by writing and support her two children very early on in her life. And she did wrote a lot of short stories for magazines. Yeah, it's some, it's an absurd them. number, isn't it? Mm, yeah. I think, I think John Clute did a full bibliography at some point and it was something like 500 stories, which yes. is ridiculous. It's quite astonishing. And, and she wrote, a huge amount of things as, as we've already said she wrote 
gothic Regency romances. She wrote um, Jane Austen's continuation. She wrote thrillers. She wrote science fiction. She's absolutely amazing. And I think while we're talking about the stories, um, it's a po- it would be a good point to mention that the Harper Fishbones, A Necklace of Raindrops, and The Kingdom Under the Sea were illustrated by Jan Piankowski, who very yeah. sadly died quite recently. And his certainly um, A Necklace of Raindrops is a book I remember from being a very young child. I used to borrow it from the library constantly because of the beauty of the illustrations. And I used to try and do them myself. And uh, so I used to sort of get my crayons and do lots of coloured stripy background. (laughs) And then, excuse me, and then I would try and get a black crayon and draw on top of them. I didn't realise for ages that it's done by decoupage, I think, kind of (laughs) silhouette, uh, you know, putting black paper on top of a marbled background. But, um, yeah, and I, I did that similar kind of artwork with a lot of the children classes of children that I taught because they're so beautiful. Um, they're very sort of spiky. And I, I just love them. Um, I've uh, My friend Virginia, who has been on this podcast, actually has a Jan Piankowski print. Oh, wow. I know. I know. It's so beautiful. And I know I just I love his work. He's just. And yeah, for me as well, I um, I discovered him through Aiken, um, and particularly The Kingdom Under the Sea, which is an amazing collection. Yes. It's so beautiful. But then ever since then, if I see his work anywhere, if, if he's illustrated anything, I will buy it. He's, I think I mentioned after, um, when I heard that he died that he's one of the people who, if I go into a bookshop or most mostly secondhand bookshops nowadays. He's mm. one of the people I'm just on the lookout for at all times. He's, he's incredible. Yeah. The, the, um, those books, those, those collections of short stories are quite expensive to buy now, even secondhand. And I think they kind of have kept their value because of his illustrations. Um, I've got a lot of the Aiken, um, that her kind of Gothic romances, uh, Castle Bearbane and and others. I have them as ebooks, and they're not very they're not very expensive as ebooks. So if you like gothic romance uh, and you know have a couple of quid and an ebook reader, I do recommend going and finding her her books. Deceptions, another brilliant one, um, which is totally based around gothic romance and the Minerva Press. Of, of the the kind of that was so famous in the gothic romance boom of the Regency period, um, and yeah, they're, they're utterly brilliant. Um, quite unsettling as a lot of her work is. So shall we go on then to talk about the second book? I mean, I could talk about Aiken like literally forever, <laughs> um, as as many of my friends know. <laughs> so um, this has been there. Funny. Uh, which I have you, this one, which is um, less pretty than yours, but I still really like it. Yeah, it's it's I yeah I like the the, the mirror bit. This is actually um, a an uncorrected bound proof because um, I had this in my old um, book reviewing days when I used to write a lot of book reviews before I got I couldn't do it anymore because of of PhD stuff. Um, so I'm going to read the blurb. In Caverna, lying is an art and everyone's an artist. In the underground city of Caverna, the world's most skilled craftsmen toil in the darkness to create delicacies beyond compare. Wines that can remove memories, cheeses that can make you hallucinate, and perfumes that convince you that you trust the wet wearer, even as they slit your throat. The people of Caverna are more ordinary, but for one thing, their faces are as blank as untouched snow. Expressions must be learnt, and only the famous face smiths can teach a person to show or fake emotion. 
In the fiercely guarded cheese tunnels of this distrustful world lives Neverfell, a girl with no memory of her past and a masked face. But the secret behind Neverfell's mask makes her more dangerous than even she knows, and it won't stay hidden forever. <gasps> yeah. Absolute chills. Yes. So good. <laughs> it's so good. Uh, and a Obviously, the, the link between the two books is the underground nature and the danger of living underground um, and, and the impact that that has on the citizens. Yeah, it's an amazing, amazing book. Um, and uh, I, everyone should read it. It's quite relatively early in uh, Frances Harding's career. Uh, this was published in 2012 which I hadn't realised how long ago it was. My gosh. So, so what, what's... That's upsetting. I know. <laughs> how, how dare time pass in the way it does 10 years ago. Wow. Uh, and it was around this time that I actually met, first met Frances Harding um, at the 2014 Worldcon, uh, which was in London. And, um, yeah, she's... she's uh, someone I, I like and admire very, very much um, as a person and as an author. She's uh, lovely. So let, let's talk about this book then. Um, one of the links about it, I obviously, is uh, the notion of children working. So um, what, what sort of similarities and, and differences do you see about child labour in this book in comparison with this? Um, I think with this book, you've got that sense of, yes, children work, but also partly because of the nature of Caverna, um, there's also that sense with a lot of the characters that you meet that part of that work is also allegiance to certain families and certain groups. Yes. And that you're born into a certain group and therefore you have that kind of allegiance and therefore you have to work mm -hmm. to protect those interests. Um, and so you have characters like Zoelle who, um, because she is um, in, because she's part of this powerful family, mm -hmm. her work, even though she is working is, um, is entirely intertwined in that but that she also may have a relatively comfortable life, even if it's a quite dangerous and yeah. um, quite stressful one. And on the other hand, you've got characters um, who do the manual labor that actually keeps Caverna running, the characters yeah. that are referred to as drudges. Um, that, and for them, of course, what it means to labor is very different. Mm. Um, and there's, on the one hand, there's there's less significance attached to them as individuals, but they're also treated by the city as disposable, partly because of that. Yes, um, and I think that's one of the that's one of the big links between the two books for me. The idea that um, laborers of of certain sorts are treated as um, disposable people. Mm. If you think about, there's that moment in is where um when is is working for the doctor and where one of the minor one of the mine um officials tells the doctor not to bother with this one child who's been injured because he's not going to be i mean he's mm. lost an arm he's not going to work mm. and then you've got a kind of parallel moment in a face like glass where um there is a one of the drudges is um what well, dies Yes, because the officials in charge don't care mm. and Neverfell's watching this and she's horrified, but she's also um, it's it's this kind of formative moment for understanding the nature of um, how these how these power structures work. Yeah. And while in um, is all of the children end up laboring in difficult conditions including um you know the, the kind of government officials 
unless yeah. they can get their children to Scotland, their children end up working in the mines as well, or in the foundry or any, any of the other factories. Whereas in a face like glass, um, Neverfell is an apprentice. She's actually learning something of value. She's a partner, yeah, uh, a junior partner in, um, but still a partner. Oh, it's still a partner in in the the cheese making um, operation of Grandable. So it's there's kind of a, a a greater hierarchy of work that children are doing um, in a face like glass. And you're right, you know. Even the even the kind of the more um, the pa- the families with more social capital, children are still working because they are working for their family's interests. But in, it's a very different kind of work, and it's yes. a very um, it, it's tr- it's a much safer, at least physically, yes, kind of work. It's an intellectual and emotional work rather than physical labor. Yeah, absolutely. So it's kind of like sort of feudal feudal times in um, Western Europe where children were kind of uh, diplomats or, you know, part, part of soft power, let's say, through kind of their um, marrying and uh, becoming part of each other's families. Yes, absolutely. So both uh, Neverfell and Is have interesting names and their names have significance, don't they? Um, do you want to explain uh, Neverfell's name, first of all, because I'm just, it's so good. It's a great name. Well, I mean, and in the context of the story, um, she is named that because she falls into a vat of Neverfell milk, which yes. in itself is great. There's just so much fun with words and naming in this book mm. in general. Um, but obviously the fact is, as we discover, that she is from the surface. She's not yes. from Caverna. Um, she has, in a way, fallen into Caverna. Mm. But of course, um, well, the the mystery of how she got there in the first place is something that we that we learn a lot more about later on. Um, I also think I've been reading, well, it's been a few months, but um, Harding tends to do quite a lot with the names of characters, doesn't she? She Um, Thinking about um, Hark in Deep Light, um, who comes to an understanding of his role as being someone who listens to people and collects stories or make peace in um, Skinful of Shadows where she's got these sort of warring factions in her head by the end of the book and um, she's um, this sort of natural mediator Um, and I just think Harding seems to really enjoy giving significant names but also names are so much fun they are um, yeah we, we mentioned dickens earlier um and the way that um there's this sort of joy in um language and one of the ways that um both uh, harding and aiken seem to um, express that is through these amazing names i mean grandable yes great erstwhile yes. yeah there's just so much to enjoy Definitely. And it, it's sort of, I think with uh, the link with uh, Skinful of Shadows is, is quite clear because of Skinful of Shadows being set uh, around the time of the um, British Civil War and the Puritan naming of... of Which is um, anyway very sort of direct about meaning. Yes. Yeah. So you're naming children for virtues and that's also in the library, isn't it? Because the protagonist of the library is called Faith. And that book is all about kind of faith, uh, faith in science, faith in religion, uh, and kind of the, the, full, the full separation of the two and the kind of the over-reliance on the rational and not having any kind of um, 
uh, any kind of consideration for the supernatural and how dangerous that can be. So the, the kind of dogmatic nature of, of um, people who put all their faith in rationality uh, and, and how that's sort of, uh, that's not a positive um, thing. Yeah, and is, of course, is, there's, is, is a drowned city, uh, a, a sort of a fabled drowned city in um, France. And we learn that um, uh, Dido's family, or Is's family, the Twites, originally came from, from France. And so that name tells us what is going to be the ultimate fate of Holderness uh, and the, the sort of danger of creating um, something that is against nature or kind of ignoring nature and thinking that that human beings can triumph over it. Um, yeah, it's, it's uh, yeah, I think that's such a glorious thing of kind of sort of how both, how, why the books are so satisfying actually is that they all, everything is significant, everything in the books. I think yes, as well, no. the fact that it works at multiple levels. Yes. That on the one hand, she makes that link really clear in some ways. If you're a child and you're maybe not used to putting this stuff together. Yeah. Um, Aiken makes it very clear for you that um, this is the link between is the drowned city and is the character. And the, the fact that they they rename the new city they're building at the end of it, they name it is, mm -hmm. um, is lovely. But then as well as the link that she's made for you, you also have that sense of, um, again, if, if, if you're a slightly older child, if you then go and look up the legend, mm. um, you find that this is also about cities being punished yes. for certain forms of overreaching. And then you can see that being reflected in what's happened to Blastburn. You can link it to other punished cities um you've got that it also works to signal a kind of medieval feeling that you have throughout Blastburn like the fact that you've um the hotel that the children are taken to is called Joyous Guard mm. so you've got that kind of Arthurian link going on so it the naming becomes really useful to really widen the the scope and the world mm. and the, the richness of the world that these characters are inhabiting and again if you're a child and you're you're going to be coming across a lot of these words for the first time and you're going to be sounding them out and trying out what different words sound like and it's just it's a brilliant introduction to um to some of the possibilities of language I think that's that's such an interesting thing because I think a lot of it stays with you as well. You find you hear these words or you read these words in a book when you're a child, and then as you get when you get older and you carry on reading, if you are a voracious reader, then you do encounter these words again um, and and learn about them. Like um, one of the things I, I love about Stolen Lake is it's an Arthurian legend, but it's never really, you, you, you're not told in the book that it's an Arthurian legend. You find out about it later, um, you know, with, with Nightbirds on Man Nantucket uh, being a kind of pastiche of, of um, Moby Dick. But I'd never heard of Moby Dick when I first read Nightbirds on Yeah, Man I don't think most children have read Moby Dick and <laughs> yet. <laughs> not yet. It's not part of our uh, British national culture the way it is in the States, for sure. Um, I mean, I didn't read Moby Dick until I was at university um, and I was studying English at university. So, yeah. And um, we have talked before about the language of, of both of the books. So um, what, what, what's you, what particular pleasure do you have in, in the language of, of um, a face like glass? Um, I think in general, Harding is one of those people who enjoys language and she's not going to try and simplify things. She's not going to try and 
um, make th- she's not going for the most obvious word at any point. She's going for the one that will bring you joy. Yes. Um, and that's in itself um, something that in any in any writing you're going to find enjoyable. There's always the moment right near the beginning where you started reading and you're like, yeah, okay, this is a Francis Harding book. I'm here. I'm happy. Yes. Um, and I think the the setting of this particular book, um, the fact that she's able to create these names and titles for things, for cheeses mm-hmm. and perfumes and expressions, um, just really gives full scope to that impulse. Yeah. And it's great. It works perfectly because we find out kind of about a quarter of the way through the book why Caverna is the way it is, why the city has gone underground. It's about protecting its assets from other people. And there's the ruler who's, what's his title? I've forgotten. The, oh no, this isn't good. <laughs> Not the Grand um, Vizier, but something like that. Um, I should remember this. Um this is awkward. Yeah. The 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 I'm I'm trying to find the bit at the end where the grand steward. The grand steward, that's the one. <laughs> yes. Trying to yeah. find the bit at the end where the kleptomancer kind of takes on that role. Yes. So the grand the grand steward is hundreds and hundreds of years old. And the only way that he can be kept alive is by exquisite things, exquisite sensations. So not just good food, but the most exquisite food, the mo- not just um, nice wines, but the most delicious that provoke a sensation because he is now without any kind of natural sensation. And there's the, the, um, the section where um, they're bringing out the food um, in the in the book there's a bit that says um Zuel says they will be bringing out a true wine to suit it and prepare the palate so this is about um the the Stapfalter's debut uh, Stapfalter cheese's debut uh something from the Gander Black family who we have not been seeing eye to eye who have not been seeing eye to eye with us at all and Gander Black wines are always so treacherous and aggressive Tiny crystal goblets were being placed before each person and the carvers were swiftly replaced by bottle bearers. The liquid within each bottle was a deep and stormy mauve. It's that choice of stormy um, suggests the aggressive nature of the wine, but in a kind of, it's, it's a natural, like a force of nature. The food is, is the force of nature that is keeping the grand steward alive and it's so well done uh her the way that she chooses the perfect word is just incredible um were there any other parts of, of the book that you you wanted to kind of bring to our atten- attention um so one of the things that i'm that i find really exciting about reading them together about reading this book immediately after reading is what's that idea of language and communication Mm. and the one of the things that we learn about Caverna is that um as as we already know from the um description of the plot um the people in Caverna don't have natural facial expressions Mm. they have to learn them in order to communicate certain feelings. And as the book progresses, we find out that the, um, the drudges are only taught a certain limited set of expressions mm-hmm. and they're really, um, and they're the very basic and very obedient mm-hmm. expressions. Um, and so to me, that sort of ties in with a lot of um, what's happening in the the actual underground parts Mm. of is where um, through the touch, these children are learning to communicate with each other. Um, And one of the things that um, Neverfell is actually able to do for them to help the, um, the revolution um, that is mostly 
that is mostly done by the drudges is to help them make a facial expression that expresses discontent yes. but there's this one bit that I'd actually really like to read out it's sort of, mm. it's it's the bit I mentioned earlier when Neverfell um, sees a drudge die and she's really upset and really horrified um, yeah. and then quite suddenly everything changed before her eyes the figures on the wall ceased to be ants and became people Suddenly she could imagine the strain on their shoulders, their broken nails, the chill of spray, the stomach-twisting awareness of the hungry drop below. How had she been stupid enough to think these people were not grief-stricken or cold or weary or angry? They just did not have the faces to show any of these things. They had always been denied such expressions and now, at last, Neverfell was starting to understand why. How could the, ju- how could the drudges rise up against bullies like the foreman? Rebels needed to look at each other and see their own anger reflected and know that their feeling was part of a greater tide. But any drudge who glanced at his fellows would see only calm, tame faces waiting for orders. Neverfell could feel the muscles of her face tighten and move. There was a tingling sensation in her skin and a buzzing feeling in her chest. Yes, she knew what this was. She remembered Childerson talking to her, telling her that she was angry. And I love that. Yes, and we, what we haven't mentioned is that Neverfell is, um, because she is not, we find out, and not a native of the Caverna, she has come from the surface. She has instinctive faces and she cannot guard her face. And this makes, this is very dangerous in the world where, where she lives because she can't hide her feelings and uh, so she's, uh, she's told by Grandable to wear a velvet mask over her face to literally cover her expression. And it's, it's, it's just such, a, such a, a beautiful way of explaining, you know, how, the danger of, of not being able to, to lie about how you're feeling in a world where feelings are very dangerous. Um, where feelings are entirely constructed, where they're yes. something that you put on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's like like putting on a costume. You're putting on a face, and so the the face myth that uh, that we meet at the beginning of the book is a very very dangerous person, and and part of a tool of of repression in in the society. Thank you very much, Aisha. Um, this has been great. We could go on forever. And, you know, one day, one day we'll meet again <laughs> and, and we will go on forever. Perhaps about Diana Wynne-Jones, which is a place where we, we first met it in person. It could be a very long episode. But... It would. <laughs> uh, so where can listeners find you online? Well, I'm on Twitter at actually Aisha. Um, and I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, um, there's a new Strange Horizons podcast um, called Critical Friends, where um, once a month um, I will be talking about science fiction criticism. Fantastic. I will uh, I'll put links to both of those, those things in, uh, in the show notes. So thank you for listening to episode 18 of Fantasy Book Swap. You can find us on Twitter at Fantasy Swap on Facebook at Fantasy Book Swap, or you can email fantasybookswap at gmail.com. You can subscribe at most of your favourite podcast places or download from Podbean. Please do rate and review if you can. Thanks to Steve Baker-Trails for production assistance and Jack Sadler-Johnson for the use of his beautiful track, Bliss. Until next time, bye.